Black people aren't suffering at an amorphous blob called the system. Black people are suffering at the hands of whiteness and white people who live inside the delusions of white supremacy and construct systems and structures to enact the delusions of white supremacy. And so the conversation doesn't need to be about whether or not you know, black people are struggling in the ghetto. The conversation needs to be about why white people made a ghetto. The conversation needs to be about why white people made chattel slavery. The conversation needs to be about why white people created redlining. If you're white listening to this right now and you feel yourself boiling over and you're getting angry, like I have no white, I don't have privilege. I struggle. Stop. Take a deep breath right now. Don't turn this off. I challenge you. This is the work that black America needs us to do right now. And if you just turn it off, that's the problem. You have the privilege to ignore it. You don't have to deal with this every day. This is what black America is dealing with every single day. What's up? Welcome to the New Music Business Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Herstand, author of How to Make It in the New Music Business, founder of Ari's Take Academy. Today, we don't have a guest. Uh, I have some clips from people I think you should hear from, like the first you just heard. That was Sonia Renee Taylor. Uh, She's an author and a poet and an activist. And I have some other speakers on the program today who I have pulled from the internet, and I think you should hear from these people. This is a very different episode. We are living in very crazy times right now. Shit is crazy. This is what Black America is dealing with every single day. And I know I'm, I'm a white man talking about this, and you should be lectured by a white man, but why am I doing this right now? I have a platform, and I'm using my platform right now to be an ally, a white ally to the black community. Because unfortunately, people have been screaming about this for years. They've been talking, they've been protesting, they've been yelling, they've been whispering, they've been lobbying. And unfortunately, the way that our system and society is set up is that unless white voices are part of that and are part of the dialogue, nothing changes. Because that's our system. That's why the majority of the Senate and Congress are all white. That's why the, the majority of the top... CEOs of the Forbes 50 top companies are all white. That's why 10 out of 10 of the Billboard power players are all white in music. Yes, 10 out of 10. Top 50, there's only one black person in the top 50 of the Billboard power players. This is the system that has been set up in place. To ignore that system, to ignore this reality to be able to ignore this reality. That's your white privilege. But this is a moment for us to step up. So that's what this episode is about. As always, please subscribe, like the show, all that stuff. Okay. Yesterday, I attended the Black Lives Matter protest march in Hollywood. Uh, It's estimated that there were 100,000 people there. It was a sight to behold. We shut down Hollywood Boulevard from Vine to Highland uh, over a mile, mile and a half, something like that. I mean, it was crazy. The street was packed. I attended the Black Lives Matter Los Angeles protest in Pan Pacific Park, which kind of uh, devolved into chaos when the police showed up. It was a beautiful, peaceful march. 
uh, for the first, well, for the first hour, we were in the park listening to speeches from BLM leaders, but also from parents and family members of uh, people who had been killed at the hands of the LAPD. All these names I'd never heard before. Most of the injustices against the black community at the hands of police, we never hear about. We hear about the horrific cases that are caught on film, but when they're not caught on film, we never hear about these things. So many names, so many names. It was tragic. Um, Then we marched for an hour and a half, beautifully peaceful. Then the police showed up and they got very aggressive very quickly. They started shooting rubber bullets, uh, using force and force was met with force. It was chaos. I was right in the middle of it. I saw police cars. uh, I saw this white dude going around and slashing tires and smashing police car windows. And, you know, it's been reported that most of the instigators on a lot of this violence and property damage, the instigators are white men. I was running in the opposite direction, full speed, when the police started shooting rubber bullets at us. 99% of us were peaceful protesters. And then there were a few people that became violent. Now, I'm never going to tell a black person how to think, act, feel, or protest. I haven't lived in their shoes. There's a lot of injustices that our society, our American society, have been inflicting on the black community for hundreds of years. This is, you know, the fact that white people don't have to acknowledge this fact is a privilege. This is our white privilege. Now, white privilege is a phrase that that get a lot of people riled up. If you're white listening to this right now and you feel yourself boiling over and you're getting angry, like, I have no white privilege. I don't have privilege. I struggle. Stop. Take a deep breath right now. Don't turn this off. I challenge you. This is the work that black America needs us to do right now. And if you just turn it off, that's the problem. You have the privilege to ignore it. You don't have to deal with this every day. This is what black America is dealing with every single day. There's so much privilege. Privilege, white privilege is not not that you don't struggle. So please get rid of that fallacy that, oh, I struggle. I've been through hard times. Fine. That's not what we're talking about here. White privilege is simply, it simply means that the color of your skin exclusively provides you with benefits and advantages that other people of color do not get namely black people, like the benefit to drive and not get pulled over, like Philando Castile was pulled over 49 times over the span of 13 years, all for minor infractions, like turning into a parking lot without a signal. We all know what happened on his final traffic stop. He was murdered by a police officer pulling him over because the police officer got scared when Philando said very calmly, officer, just want to let you know, I have a legally registered firearm with me right now. Did nothing. I watched the tape. He was murdered. Police officer got acquitted. All the police officers get acquitted. That murder black people. That's how our system is set up. White privilege is the ability to wear a hoodie at night, walk down the street without being questioned or murdered like Trayvon Martin. 
why privilege is walking into a store and not being followed. It's buying something expensive and not assuming that you're committing credit card fraud. Like the 21-year-old woman who purchased a $2,500 handbag from Barney's that she saved up for for months and really wanted that. And they accused her of a credit card fraud, held her. It's being able to get easily get pain meds from the doctor and not get questioned by it. It's not being afraid when the police drive by you. It's being able to smoke weed illegally or commit other small crimes and not worry about it. These are facts. White people are incarcerated five times less than black people, black men. It's why the sentence for cocaine is 100 times lighter than a sentence for smoking crack when it's virtually the same drug. Coke, more prominent in white communities. Crack, more prominent in black communities. It's qualifying for a mortgage 10 times more than black people in the same financial situation. That's current. White privilege is the ability to riot, burn cars, smash windows after your hockey team wins and being laughed off as dumb kids, not thugs. White privilege is not getting the police called on you for an alleged fake $20 bill. White privilege is not getting killed by the police for doing nothing wrong. Does not mean your life is not hard. It does not mean that you don't struggle. It simply means that the color of your skin gives you advantages in American society, plain and simple. I have been spending the last two weeks grappling with what to do as a white man, the most privileged motherfucker in society right now. Um, And the more that I've tuned in and listened to black leaders, read black leaders, listened to their speeches, read their essays and their books. Um, just tuning in, I hear that they're asking for white allies to step up right now and to speak out. You know, signs that I saw at the marches, white silence is violence. This is not a time to remain silent right now. This is not the time to just hope this blows over. This is a revolution that's happening right now. And the rallying cries that a lot of people struggle with uh, from the Black Lives Matter movement right now are what we're hearing defund the police. That freaks out a lot of white people. We, We need the police. We need the police. Defund the police doesn't necessarily mean completely abolish all police or all public safety. It means reimagining what a police, a public safety department can look like and also reinvesting the funds. I want to read a few things right now. Um, one is from John Legend, his Twitter thread from June 7th. Uh, I encourage you to check it out. He said, I know this word defund has caused some controversy, even from some who are inclined to agree with a lot of the underlying arguments. Some hear that word and envision the purge, some dystopian descent into anarchy. Some intentionally want to cast the argument in extremes like that so they can score political points. But I ask that those of you who are reasonable and actually care about making this country healthy and safe for all people engage with the thoughtful arguments in this piece. Police funding takes up a huge portion of our local budgets. Budgets are moral documents, which spell out in black and white what our priorities are. 
We have finite amounts of money to spend. And right now we spend far too much on policing. And that choice comes at a cost. We defund housing support, healthcare, education, and childcare, the arts, drug treatment, community centers, all sorts of services that would actually reduce the problems that we ask the police to surveil and contain. Whenever there are budget cuts, those softer services are on the chopping block first. And since we know we're not solving the underlying problems, we figure we better keep a huge police force to contain them. Let's resolve to do differently. Let's imagine a healthier world. This doesn't mean there will be no police. It means there should be significantly fewer police and more professionals of other types with expertise in their fields, whether it's social work, healthcare, conflict resolution, drug treatment, etc. Defund is the word because it says we're taking away some funding from one budget item and moving it to higher priorities. Reform or retrain does not at all suggest the same thing. We've been supposedly doing the latter for decades. It's not the job of grassroots activists on the left to craft political messaging for mainstream Democratic candidates. I'm almost 100% sure Biden won't be tweeting defund the police. It's the job of activists to push these politicians toward meaningful change. Everyone was saying $15 minimum wage and Medicare for all and gay marriage were also unrealistic and ridiculous, but activists moved the conversation and pushed politicians toward progress. I also want uh, to play a few other voices right now, Black Voices leaders. These are two women, uh, two of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. Alicia Garza, uh, this is her interview on Meet the Press this past Sunday about what defund the police mean. And then we're going to hear from Patrice Cullors on what another co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, on what her thoughts on what defund the police actually means. When we talk about defunding the police, what we're saying is invest in the resources that our communities need. So much of policing right now is generated and directed towards quality of life issues. But what we do need is increased funding for housing. We need increased funding for education. We need increased funding for the quality of life of communities who are over-policed and over-surveilled. And so I would just ask all of us, are we willing to live in fear that our lives will be taken by police officers who are literally using their power in the wrong way? Or are we willing to adopt and absorb the fear of what it might mean to change our practices, which will ultimately lead to a better quality of life for everyone? And so again, I want to be very, very clear. Seven years ago, people thought that Black Lives Matter was a radical idea. And yet Black Lives Matter is now a household name, and it's something being discussed across kitchen tables all over the world. Why can't we start to look at how it is that we reorganize our priorities so that people don't have to be in the streets protesting during a national pandemic? It's really in a global yeah. pandemic. It's time for us to address the pandemic in our communities. And that pandemic is not having the resources we need to live well. And that's not just a black problem, that's everybody's problem. Question, I don't have any more faith and charges and convictions. I wanna rely on this demand of defunding. I think that is our next stage of the work. If you look across cities, across this country, and you look at their budgets, you will see that there's a disproportionate amount of money given over to law enforcement. Then things like healthcare, after school programs, 
education, access to jobs. This is an issue about what we're prioritizing. The unfortunate reality uh, with police departments, sheriff's departments, uh, correctional officers, is that they are trained to use force first. No amount of training can untrain the culture of law enforcement, which is a culture of violence. When we put all of our dollars towards law enforcement, making them be the first responders to mental health crisis, the first responders to issues of domestic violence, the first responders to issues of homelessness, we're creating a public health crisis because the more contact with police, the more harm. Instead, we can put those dollars towards social workers responding to mental health crisis, to doctors responding to drug and alcohol crisis, to caseworkers responding to homelessness. We can do so much more with our dollars. We can end homelessness. We can end gentrification. We can give everybody a good quality of life if we discontinue our obsession with giving the police everything and believing that they are the the pathway towards public safety. Now, a lot of my white friends um, saw the video of George Floyd being murdered and reacted like any person with a conscience reacts with horror and terror. Believe it's wrong. I heard Rush Limbaugh um, and The Breakfast Club, which is an all-black um, radio show. Rush Limbaugh and The Breakfast Club were had an had a engaging conversation, which is great. We need to be talking to people who are not like us. And this is the first time that I've heard that from white conservatives not siding with the police. They watch that. It's hard to watch that video and side with the police in that situation. But every time up until this point, white conservative America sides with the police. Black lives don't matter. All lives matter. Yeah, no shit. That's not what we're talking about right now. You don't, you don't go to a, a cancer march, a march for breast cancer. You say, all diseases matter. Why, why are we talking about breast cancer right now? All diseases matter. That's that's like uh, I saw I watched this bit by Michael Che, his uh, stand-up special he had. The wife coming to him and saying, "Baby, do you love me?" And then saying, "I love everybody. I love all God's creatures equally. You're no different." It's absurd. Of course, it's absurd. That's how absurd "all lives matter" means. It's like if you break your arm. This is uh, tweeted by Samaj Mitchell. You break your arm and go to the doctor, and the doctor says. All your bones matter, not just your arm. You're going to look at them stupid because, yes, all your bones matter, but they are fine. Your arm needs attention right now. There's that photo of the little girl holding up a sign saying, we said black lives matter. Never said only black lives matter. We know all lives matter. We just need your help with the hashtag black lives matter for black lives are in danger. Mitt Romney just tweeted black lives matter. Never thought I'd see that. Black Lives Matter seven years ago, like Alicia said, seemed radical. It's funny how all these radical ideas are not so radical as time progresses. And people call progressives 
the radical ones. We need progressives to, to prog- progress future, to progress our society into the future. A lot of my white friends, um, yes, they saw that video of George Floyd and it was expressed outrage, but like, but, but people shouldn't be looting. People shouldn't be burning police cars. I want to play a clip from Trevor Noah, host of The Daily Show. When you are a have and when you are a have not, you see the world in very different ways. And a lot of the time people say to the have nots, this is not the right way to handle things. When Colin Kaepernick kneels, they say, this is not the right way to protest. When Martin Luther King had children as part of his protest in Birmingham, Alabama, people said having children as your protest is not the right way to do things. When he marched in Selma, people said, this is not the right way to do things. When people burn things, they say it's not the. It's never the right way because there's never there is never a right way to protest. And I've said this before: there is no right way to protest because that's what protest is. It cannot be right because you are protesting against a thing that is stopping you. And so I think what a lot of people don't realize is the same way you might have experienced even more anger and and more just visceral disdain watching those people loot that target, think to yourselves, or maybe it would help you if you, if you think about that, that, that unease that you felt watching that target being looted. Try to imagine how it must feel for black Americans when they watch themselves being looted every single day, because that's fundamentally what's happening in America. Police in America are looting black bodies. And I know someone might think that's an extreme phrase, but it's not because here's the thing I think a lot of people don't realize. George Floyd died. That is part of the reason the story became so big is because he died. But how many George Floyds are there that don't die? How many men are having knees put on their necks? How many Sandra Blands are out there being tossed around? We don't, we don't, it doesn't make the news because it's, it's not grim enough. It doesn't even get us enough anymore. It's only the deaths, the gruesome deaths that stick out. But imagine to yourself, if you grew up in a community where every day someone had their, 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 their knee on your neck, where every day somebody was out there oppressing you every single day, you tell me what that does to you as a society, as a community, as a group of people. And when you know that this is happening because of the color of your skin, not because the people are saying it's happening because of the color of your skin, but rather because it is only happening to you and you are the only people who have that skin color. And I know there's people who say, yeah, but like, well, how come black, black people don't care when black people kill? But man, it's one of the dumbest arguments ever. Of course they care. If you've ever been to a hood anywhere, not just in America, but anywhere in the world, you'd know how much black people care about that. If you know anything about under-policing and over-policing, though, you would understand how that comes to be. The police show black people how valuable their lives are considered by the society. And so then those people who live in those communities know how to or not deal with those lives. Because best believe, if you kill a white person, especially in America, there is a whole lot more justice than is coming your way than if you killed some black body in a black neighborhood somewhere. And so to anyone who watched that video, don't, don't ask yourself if it's right or wrong to loot. Or, don't ask yourself, wow, what does looting help? What? No, no, no. Ask yourself that, ask yourself that question. Ask yourself, 
why it got you that much more watching watching these people loot because they were destroying the contract that you thought they had signed with your society and now think to yourself imagine if you were them watching that contract being ripped up every single day ask yourself how you'd feel all right so what should you do right now what should we do what needs to be done right now this is not the time to tune out being in music comes with great responsibility We are gatekeepers of the culture. It's our responsibility to not only come together to celebrate the wins, but also hold each other up during a loss. That's why the show must be paused and music needed to happen last Tuesday. At Ari's Take, uh, we took the day off. I gave my employees the day off to put in the work, to do the work. That was the point of the show must be paused, the Blackout Tuesday. The Blackout Tuesday was not a day off. That was supposed to be a day on, but to disconnect from the business as usual and to put in serious work on tuning in what's happening right now, listening to black leaders, reading black authors, and trying to understand why people are so upset right now. It's not just about George Floyd. If you think that this whole uprising is because it's just George Floyd, you are sadly mistaken and you extremely ignorant and you need to put in the work. Now, this is not me trying to chastise you. This is hoping that you'll step the fuck up and break out of your white bubble. It's uncomfortable. If you're uncomfortable right now and you're angry with me, good. Use that. At Ari's Take, we put together a list of over 100 music companies, and we asked them whether they participated in the show must be paused or not. Did they give their employees the day off or not? Did they issue statements or not? Did they donate to causes, organizations that support black causes or not? No judgment, just wanting to see what where you're at. We have this list on Ari's Take right now. You can check it out. It's a spreadsheet. You can search it. Ari'sTake.com. That's what June 2nd was all about. The show must be paused. I uh, asked the co-founders of the show must be paused to black female executives in music, Jamila Thomas and Brianna Agumang. I apologize for that pronunciation. What it was about. They wrote on the show must be paused.com in response to the murders of George Floyd, Brianna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, and countless other black citizens at the hands of police, the show must be paused is an initiative created by two black women in music in observance of the longstanding racism and inequality that exists from the boardroom to the boulevard. We will not continue to conduct business as usual without regard for black lives. Tuesday, June 2nd is meant to intentionally disrupt the work week. Monday suggests a long weekend, and we can't wait until Friday for change. It is a day to take a beat for an honest, reflective, and productive conversation about what actions we need to collectively take to support the black community. The music industry is a multi-billion dollar industry, an industry that has profited predominantly from black art. Our mission is to hold the industry at large, including major corporations and their partners who benefit from the efforts, struggles, and success of black people accountable. To that end, it is the obligation of these entities to protect and empower the black communities that have made them disproportionately wealthy in ways that are measurable and transparent. This is not just a 24-hour initiative. We are and will be in this fight for the long haul. A plan of action will be announced. We are tired and can't change things alone. In the meantime, 
to our black friends and family, please take the time for you and your mental health. To our allies, the time is now to have difficult conversations with family, friends, and colleagues. They also wrote in uh, a follow-up that I posted in my article on Ari's Take. The music industry is an industry that has profited predominantly from black art. To that end, it is the obligation of these entities to protect and empower the black communities that have made them disproportionately wealthy in ways that are measurable and transparent. That's what Jamila Thomas said. She continued, the point was never to mute ourselves. This was a day to completely disconnect from work and make a difference in our community because we should not normalize what is happening. Her co-creator, Brianna, discussed the movement will move forward after what was popularly referred to as Blackout Tuesday. She said the day was a strong start to the change we want to make in the industry. We are taking all thoughts and ideas that were gathered and will be implementing them into phase two of this movement. Next steps are about clarifying needs and mobilizing the people to be the change we wish to see. The goal is to tap into the community at large to create change that is impactful and long-lasting. All right. So what do we do right now? I, I've heard from some of my white friends saying, I just can't take it anymore. It's too much. I need a break. I need a, I need a tune out. It's just, it's too much. Okay. I empathize with that. It's a lot. That's also part of your white privilege to tune out. The black community can't tune out. This is happening every day. This is a system that has been set up. I encourage you to tune in, to learn about the history of America, not not the history we're taught in school, because that's white history. The actual real history of, of America, that includes a lot of black history. We're not taught black history in school. We're taught white history. So tune in. There's two things that I want you to do. If you're only going to do two things, do these two things. I know there's reading lists of 15 books you need to read and 27 documentaries and yada, yada. That's a lot. Okay. I'm giving you two things to do. These are, these will not take long and they're very easy to do. Number one, read Tanahasi Coates essay, the case for reparations. Just search it. I'll put it in the show notes, the case for reparations, or you can listen to it. If you don't like reading, you're listening to this right now. Don't read it. There's a SoundCloud link right at the top of the article. Just click that and listen to it. It's an hour, hour and a half, something like that. This outlines the history of America and how we have systematically oppressed black people and prevented their upward mobility. If you're wondering why, that's the question you should be asking is, is why are neighborhoods segregated? Why do black men suffer disproportionately than white men? Why is that? Well, he explains why that is. Here's, a, here's actually him testifying before Congress uh, last year when they were debating H.R. 40, uh, the bill to discuss reparations. This is what he had to say um, to the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, but just in general. Take a listen. Yesterday, when asked about reparations, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell offered a familiar reply. America should not be held liable for something that happened 150 years ago, since none of us currently alive are responsible. This rebuttal proffers a strange theory of governance 
that American accounts are somehow bound by the lifetime of its generations. But well into this century, the United States was still paying out pensions to the heirs of Civil War soldiers. We honor treaties that date back some 200 years, despite no one being alive who signed those treaties. Many of us would love to be taxed for the things we are solely and individually responsible for. But we are American citizens, and thus bound to a collective enterprise that extends beyond our individual and personal reach. It would seem ridiculous to dispute invocations of the founders or the greatest generation on the basis of a lack of membership in either group. We recognize our lineage as a generational trust, as inheritance. And the real dilemma posed by reparations is just that, a dilemma of inheritance. It is impossible to imagine America without the inheritance of slavery. As historian Ed Baptist has written, enslavement, quote, shaped every crucial aspect of the economy and politics of America, so that by 1836, more than 600 million, or almost half of the economic activity in the United States derived directly or indirectly from the cotton produced by the million-odd slaves. By the time the enslaved were emancipated, they comprised the largest single asset in America, $3 billion and $1860 more than all the other assets in the country combined. The method of cultivating this asset was neither gentle cajoling nor persuasion, but torture, rape, and child trafficking. Enslavement reigned for 250 years on these shores. When it ended, this country could have extended its hallowed principles, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to all regardless of color. But America had other principles in mind. And so for a century after the Civil War, black people were subjected to a relentless campaign of terror, a campaign that extended well into the lifetime of Majority Leader McConnell. It is tempting to divorce this modern campaign of terror, of plunder, from enslavement. But the logic of enslavement, of white supremacy, respects no such borders. And the god of bondage was lustful and begat many heirs, coup d'etats and convict leasing, vagrancy laws and debt peonage, redlining and racist GI bills, poll taxes and state-sponsored state terrorism. We grant that Mr. McConnell was not alive for Appomattox, but he was alive for the electrocution of George Stinney. He was alive for the blinding of Isaac Woodward. He was alive to witness kleptocracy in his native Alabama and a regime premised on electoral theft. Majority Leader McConnell cited civil rights legislation yesterday, as well he should, because he was alive to witness the harassment, jailing, and betrayal of those responsible for that legislation by a government sworn to protect them. He was alive for the redlining of Chicago and the looting of black homeowners of some $4 billion. Victims of that plunder are very much alive today. I am sure they'd love a word with the majority leader. What they know, what this committee must know, is that while emancipation dead bolted the door against the bandits of America, Jim Crow wedged the windows wide open. And that is the thing about Senator McConnell's something. It was 150 years ago, and it was right now. The typical black family in this country has one-tenth the wealth of the typical white family. Black women die in childbirth at four times the rate of white women. 
And there is, of course, the shame of this land of the free, boasting the largest prison population on the planet, of which the descendants of the enslaved make up the largest share. The matter of reparations is one of making amends and direct redress, but it is also a question of citizenship. In H.R. 40, this body has a chance to both make good on its 2009 apology for enslavement and reject fair-weather patriotism, to say that a nation is both its credits and its debits, that if Thomas Jefferson matters, so does Sally Hemings, that if D-Day matters, so does Black Wall Street, that if Valley Forge matters, so does Fort Pillow, because the question really is not whether we will be tied to the somethings of our past, but whether we are courageous enough to be tied to the whole of them. Thank you. So please go read his piece or listen to it. Take that in. The second thing that you can do right now to kind of get yourself started, watch Ava DuVernay's documentary 13. One out of four human beings with their hands on bars, shackled in the world, are locked up here in the land of the free. Khalif Browder was walking home from a party when he was stopped by police. Then they said, we're going to take you to the precinct, and most likely we're going to let you go home. And then I never went home. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution makes it unconstitutional for someone to be held as a slave. There are exceptions, including criminals. The loophole was immediately exploited. What you got after that was a rapid transition to a mythology of black criminality. Some people got the real problem. Animals. Beast that needed to be controlled. You better believe it. I'm only human. It became virtually impossible for a politician to run and appear soft on crime. The kinds of kids that are called super predators. Millions of dollars will be allocated for prison and jail facilities. Three strikes and you are out. It was an enormous burden on the black community, but it also violated a sense of core fairness. States were required to keep these prisons filled, even if nobody was committing a crime. It's so difficult to talk about mass incarceration because it has become heavily monetized. The focus is on taking people from prison, putting them in community corrections, parole and probation. How much progress is it really if now there's a private company making money off the GPS monitor? We now have more African Americans under criminal supervision than all the slaves back in the 1850s. We are the products of the history that our ancestors chose. Products of that set of choices that we have to understand in order to escape from it. I'm only human after all, don't put the blame on me. Watch this documentary so you can learn about the history of, of mass incarceration and how it got to be that way. These are things that the black community needs us to do right now. We got to tune in. Stop tuning out. That's privilege. Do some research. Do some learning. I'm continuing to learn. I'm reading White Fragility right now. Great read. But again, two things you can do right now if you're super overwhelmed. 
Case for reparations, number one. Number two, watch 13th, Avi DuVernay. And then, of course, take it further. Listen to your local black leaders. Attend protests, marches, rallies. Donate to causes you believe in. I've listed a bunch on Ari's take that companies are participating in, like Color for Change, NAACP, Legal Defense Fund, Equal Justice Initiative. There's a bunch of great organizations of people actually doing the work out there. You know, uh, Rolling Stone just wrote a, a really interesting piece. And uh, they talk about, they, they quoted a few anonymous uh, record label execs. One of the, uh, the A&Rs, they said, pop music is black music. That's just what it is. We need the offices to reflect the charts. It's real simple. Most of the executives at major labels are all white. Even indie labels, white. And the black executives remain concentrated in what are called urban departments, which focus on hip hop and R&B, while white executives are free to move as they please. Remember the term R&B was coined after all to replace race music. The charts have always been mostly segregated with white musicians responsible for the majority of rock, country, and pop and black musicians making their way in R&B and hip hop. Black acts, Rolling Stone writes, are still penalized for trying to move into white spaces. Just last year, Little Nas X was booted off Billboard's country chart while white performers who dabble in hip hop like Post Malone, G-Eazy, and in R&B like Adele benefit from a significant commercial windfall. Let's not forget that, like the Show Must Be Paused co-founders wrote, that the music industry has been exploiting the black community for ever, since the beginning. Look at the, what the major label record deals are. One of the label execs interviewed for this piece said, none of the major labels would, be, would even be standing if the business were fair. Duh. The music business has one of the most predatory loans in the history of loans, says a manager that was interviewed for this piece. Even with a bank, your interest rate may be high, but if you pay your loan off, you at least own your house. In the music industry, you give someone something for eternity and you never get it back. Of course, a typical record deal involves an artist giving up the rights to their music, often in perpetuity in exchange for an upfront check. And eventually, maybe the right to pocket 18 cents out of every dollar made from the recordings. After the label recovers the advance, the marketing budget, tour support, and other expenses. 18%? You've been following me for any time, you know, don't sign a major label deal. You don't need to. All right. That was uh, that Rolling Stone piece. You can search it. It's called The Music Industry Was Built on Racism Changing. It Will Take More Than Donations. I'll put that in the show notes also. That was written by Elias Light. All right. Enough of me. Go put in the work. Peace and love. <laughs>